here we go. This is 20 questions with Pastor Mike. I'm Pastor Mike. You are bringing the questions and I might have cat hair on my microphone at the moment. <laughs> it gets everywhere. Um, and the first question for today, as I try to help you learn to think biblically about everything, that's my goal. Doesn't mean I know everything, but that's my goal is to try to think biblically and help others to do the same. And the first question we have comes from Tanya and I already see the flood of live chat comments coming in. Thank you guys for joining me and being here with me. Um, gratefully, I, I'll announce real quick before I go to Tanya's question. Uh, here, back to zero. Right before we get to it, <clears throat> the um, internet issues I was having over the past like week plus seem to be resolved now. And it turns out that one of my neighbors across the street, something was wrong with their system. And they said maybe a dog chewed on the wire and it was causing feedback interference, I don't even know what that means, that was messing up the upload speed for a, a group of homes, including mine. But I'm the only person who's live streaming like this, so I'm the only one that noticed. Anyway, it's fixed now, and we're able to move forward. And here we go. Question number one from Tanya. and Excuse me, Tanya. From Tanya, who says, um, in Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16, what exactly does Paul mean by the faith? Now, Tanya actually asked several questions here, so I'm going to take them one at a time. First question is, what does the phrase, the faith, mean when Paul uses it? Another one is, how does the church attain to this unity that Ephesians talks about? Why is the church so apparently lacking in unity, and why are so few believers participating? And of course, we're going to spend um, not as much time on this as it might deserve, but let's look at the passage, and I'll try to answer these questions to the best of my ability. The easiest one is actually, what does Paul mean by the phrase, the faith? That's the easy one. So here we go. Um reading the section of scripture that Tanya asked me to uh, quote, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Then it gives us commentary on the verse that was just quoted by Paul. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also has a descended. He had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And that may actually be one group of people. And that's why there's no comma between them. Uh, they might be hyphenated pastor, teacher, shepherd, teacher. That would be the idea here. Anyway, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the mature stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So it, like summary real quick, it just teaches about like some of the roles in the church and how those things are leading us towards unity. And there's various types of unity discussed. Let me first just tackle the meaning of the phrase, the faith. Um, in my opinion, pretty much every time in your English translations, when you see the phrase, the faith, like the word faith, but with the word the in front of it, when you see the faith, that is going to be a different kind of thing than you having faith. So faith that I have is like, I believe in Christ. I trust in Christ. I relationally entrust myself to Christ. Like that's my faith. I believe in his death and resurrection, all that kind of stuff. That's my personal decision to trust. It's my posture of trust towards God. But the phrase, the faith, isn't just that. I think the phrase, the faith, really consistently in the New Testament, refers to, like, the doctrines that we believe as Christians. Now, I don't want to completely limit it to that, but I think that's the emphasis of the phrase, the faith. And I did, like, a word study on this a while back. That's why I have this conclusion. So I'll give you a couple examples. 
that when the faith comes up, it doesn't mean your personal faith in Christ, but it rather means like Jesus is Lord. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. These are doctrinal statements. And that's what the faith emphasizes. So an example of this is First um, Timothy 6.21, that by professing these, these false teachings, some people have swerved from the faith. That is false teachings. They now profess wrong doctrines and they have therefore left the faith. They no longer have the doctrines of the truth of Christianity. Or Jude, right? I say chapter one, but there's only one chapter in Jude. But Jude verse three, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this isn't talking about God giving you a gift of faith. Rather, it's talking about the doctrines we believe. That is to say, this is actually pretty important. Here in the New Testament, we're learning that the theology of the Christian church, the things that we believe, was already fully fully given, at least. The doctrines were all given at the end of the first century. At the time when Jude is writing, the faith, our doctrines, our beliefs were already given, which means the church should inherently be resistant to new theology. It's fine if you say, I'm only teaching what they taught originally. Maybe some people forgot it. Maybe they were ignored it. And I'm going back to, but really we're always going back to the first century, to the original teachings of the apostles, the faith that was once for all delivered. Okay. How does that then weigh into the Ephesians passage? Um, here, Ephesians chapter four, he says that the, the ministry to the body is happening and it's building up the body of Christ until there's a time when we're going to attain the unity of the faith. So what's the unity of the faith? I, I think that it's, um, it's talking about multiple things, but one of them is same doctrine that Christians till we all have the same doctrines, same core doctrines of Christian, of Christian faith. And then the, um, knowledge of the son of God, that would be not only being aware of him, I think, but growing in our, in, in relational experience with him and also mature manhood, which refers to the character of Christ earlier in Ephesians four, he's talking about like loving one another, bearing with one another, caring for one another, self-sacrificially treating each other. So it's about doctrine and love. If I could put it summarily, right? Unity as, as a Christian is about unity in the things we believe and unity in the loving way in which we treat each other. Does this mean we believe that we, we agree on every single thing? No, 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 no. We're talking about the faith or the essentials of the faith, the essential teachings of Christianity, not every single thing a Christian might believe. Um, <clears throat> now, let me read your question again, and I'll go to your guys' other questions today. And you say, what is the faith? Okay, that's like focusing on the doctrines. Uh, how does the church attain this unity? Well, one is by affirming the original doctrines, the original apostles taught, which means Bible teaching to the church, getting New Testament teachings into the church and into the minds of believers. That's a unity that we want to reach for. Um, why is the church so apparently lacking in unity? Um, well, here I want to just pause for a second because I don't know, Tanya, I don't know where you live or where you're from, but when you say it's lacking in unity, I tend to think of local churches in my area and we can make these judgments. This is just a caution for us because I want to get 20 questions today. I'm not going to get into a lot of detail. The caution is this, that while I complain about problems in the church, I'm usually only aware of a tiny, tiny, tiny little fragment of the church that is my personal experience with Christians or a reputation the church has that I believe about believers I've never met because of rumors. So I don't know that the church is as disunified as some people think it is. I also think that the majority of Christians in this world are not in the United States. And while a lot of the people who talk about the church, they're really referring to 
either the the local pe- pe- place where they live or they're referring to like Western Christians or they're perhaps referring to whoever the famous people are, whoever happens to be in the news. But this does not even represent the majority of the church. So I just hesitate to throw a judgment upon the church in general that it's disunified. I do think there's a chance from what I can tell that the disunity that I do see in the American church is not reflective of the normal experience of churches elsewhere in the world. And my concern is that, generally speaking, American Christians are kind of worldly. And that worldliness affects our relationships with each other and causes various amounts of disunity. I'm just being honest. <laughs> that's that's the thing. And I'm not immune to this myself. Because I can grow into habits of treating other people in ungodly ways. When I, I mean, look at, look at the same passage in Ephesians. Look at the calling that we're given here. Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility... And gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is this like, each Christian individually must have this like obsession with kindness and grace and unity that we can try to have in our churches. And what would cause me to not have that? Well, because I'm learning habits of behavior that come from outside of the example of Christ, outside of the teaching of the New Testament. I'm learning it from the world around me, or perhaps from a worldly Christians around me. So that would be my answer there. Um, why are so few believers participating? All that kind of thing. I think that's a little bit much to get into today, but I hope that helps some of your question, Tanya. My, my application for it is this. Don't judge the church until you get the plank out of your eye. This applies to me too, right? When I look around and I see problems and issues in the church, I can't just start shape, you know, shaking my fist at Christians in general before this is super dangerous territory judging the church in general or judging the world in general even it's all dangerous territory when you're judging large groups of people to try to discern what the problems are first deal with your plank this is the protection jesus gives us get the plank out of your eye first so i'm asking you this are you unified in doctrine that is you know the real teachings of the new testament those core beliefs you're unified in that and are you unified in your behavior towards other christians where you're teaching them, treating them with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with them in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Is, is that your obsession personally? And I have to ask myself this question too. Deal with that before you deal with anything else. Question number two, Rod D says, why does Stephen mention that Abraham's father, Terah, died before Abraham left his home? in Haran, in Acts 7, 4b, that seems to contradict Genesis eleven twenty six and eleven thirty two, which says that Terah became the father of Abraham, then called Abram by the time he was 70. And Terah died in Haran at the age of 205. This means that Stephen is saying Abraham was 135 when he left Haran, but Genesis 12, 4 says he was only about 75 when he set out from Haran. Um, man, I, it was a while ago I looked into this rod and I'm just honestly not remembering off the top of my head some of the details. There was some particular resource, like a, a, a pastor or apologist who I thought did a really good job working through all of Stephen's address in Acts 7 and explaining like, um, uh, why these things looked different from one perspective versus another. Like it's not contradiction. It, you just need more details, right? On a surface reading, when you casually read it, you look and you go, Oh, I don't know how that works. But um, that was, gosh, that was a few years ago and I even thought about this one. So let me, I'll read it to us. I might have to pass on it just because of my immediate lack of memory on it. Um, Acts 7.4, it says, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans or the Chaldeans to, and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you an answer off the cuff, off the top of my head, which is I would I would be interested in what Stephen's focusing on is when uh, Abraham was living in the land, in the actual land. Abraham, if, if, if memory serves, Abraham went from Haran to another location. Yeah, I, I'm going off the top of my head, and that's probably dangerous to do. Uh, what I'm going to suggest is I don't immediately see the problem with what he did, and it's because Abraham moved twice, if I recall correctly. And I think Stephen's trying to emphasize that too. He left the Chaldeans. He lived in Haran. After his father died, he got removed from there to this land which you're now living. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to look into that one more. Sorry, off the top of my head, I don't have the answer. I'd have to do some research on it. Uh, Marty Moxie has a question. What is your opinion of the written works of Emanuel Swedenborg? Watchman Nee and Charles Spurgeon. Please share your favorite teachers, Marty from South Africa. Um, um, I don't, I'm not big on favorites. Sorry, Marty. Uh, this is true about all things in my life. If you ask me my favorite ice cream, I don't have one. If you ask me my favorite movie, I don't have one. Favorite music, I don't have one. Don't have favorites of much of anything. Um, I just tend to think everything's all complicated and <laughs> teachers are complicated. And even recommending teachers is complicated because everybody's a mixed bag, including me including me. I'm going to have pros. I'm going to have cons, weaknesses or shortcomings that I'm not aware of even. So that's true of all of us. Um, but I will say, um, oh, I'm skipping an answer. Oh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to do Marty. That should be number four. This is for Sarah later. I'm going to do Marty now. He was number four. I'll do Kate for Christ three, which is next. Okay. Um, so the written works of Spurgeon, I, I, I've liked what I've written, read from Spurgeon. Mostly I read his book, uh, I think it was called Lectures to My Students, and he's trying to lecturing young leaders. And Spurgeon is one of those guys who's like very strong um, and principled. And I think a lot of guys, we need that. We, a lot of people need that, like to just be reminded of these strong, healthy principles. So I like that I've read from Spurgeon. I haven't read much of his other stuff, to be honest. As far as the other guys you've mentioned... I haven't read their works at all. Um, Emmanuel Swedenborg, don't the name doesn't ring a bell. Watchman Nee, I have not looked into his stuff except maybe fifteen years ago. Um, I know there was there was a couple guys, one of them Watchman Nee, who wrote stuff about like prayer and devotion, but haven't spent time on it. So I, sorry Marty, I wish I could help more. I am utterly useless today. Let's go to question number four, which was number three on the list. Sarah gave me. Kate for Christ says, Hey Mike, why do people think that dancing is a sin? Is there a biblical basis to this, or is this is this, sorry, jump there, um, legalistic slash unnecessary. All right, this is a question I can actually talk about. <laughs> um, so dancing. Um, dancing, in my opinion, why people think it's a sin is because so much of dancing is sinful. Um, dancing is kind of like drinking. It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like drinking. In that it could easily become sinful, but it's not inherently sinful. And so someone who can enjoy drinking in moderation, and it's a blessing and you enjoy it and you thank God for it, great. And others who take it too far, well, people have responded to this by saying that just all drinking is bad. And you see what they're reacting to is they're reacting to the abuses of a thing as if it's just the thing itself that's causing the abuses. In our culture in particular, in, in the culture I live in and I've grown up in, dancing is generally a pretty sexualized thing. It's normal. Like the majority of the dancing I've actually seen people do, whether it's on TV or if it's just whatever in life, the majority of it has been pretty inappropriate. But yet I've also been at like 
a wedding where they had dancing at the uh, you know after the wedding during the reception and there was nothing weird or sexualized going on and people were just having a good time they were just having fun and there was nothing that i thought was wrong or inappropriate and it wasn't that people were wearing all these skippy clothes and doing sexualized things so my thought for you is this um people say that dancing is a sin because they think they're protecting people from its abuses but this is not a a good thing for christians to do our biblical tradition is that we, like what we get from scripture, I use the word tradition there, but what I'm saying we get from scripture is this sort of way of dealing with these types of issues. And the way we deal with them is by giving people liberty and teaching them responsibility with their liberty. That's the biblical way of handling alcohol, of dealing with things like intercourse and marriage. Here's liberty, enjoy it. It's a blessing. Don't feel bad about it. But here's the rules about when it would be wrong. So I think a healthy thing for Christians to do is know, know when dancing is crossing a line but to enjoy it up until that point. And if for some reason you can't dance or you don't want to dance, you don't like dancing, don't judge others because of it. That to me is a consistent Christian ethic on dealing with things like that. Now, biblically speaking, David literally danced to the Lord. Like he was, and, and he wasn't wearing a whole lot of clothes at the time, but it wasn't sexual. There was nothing sexual about it, right? It didn't have that connotation at all. So don't think that he wasn't wearing enough clothes means it was that. Rather, he's just celebrating and dancing under the Lord. And we get this, this sense that I think that um, if we teleported back in time and we saw Jewish celebrations during the time of Moses, during the time of Joshua, we saw them celebrating and worshiping during the time of David, we would probably be surprised at how uh, openly they were celebrating and moving and things like that. And that this creates a situation, I think, with us as a church where we become uncomfortable with things we don't need to be uncomfortable with. And then, then people look at us as the church and we're condemning behavior that's not really bad because we're worried it might become bad. And then that's a bad look for the church, if I can say this. Like it's not, it doesn't help my witness. If people think I'm against um, behaviors that, that, they, that are innocent and enjoyable, right? But then in our culture, there's no rules. Our culture is totally messed up. We have, I mean, you guys know this, right? We have children doing super sexualized dances and then these videos go viral online and all i'm seeing is like this is definitely sin this is definitely wrong but i mean go look at fiddler on the roof and see the dancing there and be like yeah this is obviously he's just having a good time there's nothing wrong with that so those are some thoughts there biblically there's definitely okay but there's boundaries to it uh, that should be obvious if people are being in having integrity okay we got no more questions for today i've got all 20 questions loaded up in my queue um i will handle them to the best of my ability and thank you guys again for joining this is going to be question number five but as a reminder i do this live stream every friday at 1 p.m you can come and bring this is the best way to ask me questions for those of you who are trying to reach out and get get a hold of me i'm sorry i can't get to everybody we do the best we can we just get so many messages that it's just it become impossible uh, to to handle all that um but i i am looking forward to every week getting as many questions as i can and you know me i will at least and, and the thing is i know pastors who didn't like this about what i'm doing right now what i'm how i've had two questions out of four, out of four that i said i'm not really sure what the right answer to and I know that you guys respect this. Like this is something I would let like let other leaders know too. When you're willing to admit that you don't know something, you don't lose the trust of your people, you gain it. And so other this is what I've learned from experience. Like I just admitted I don't know it because I don't know it. But what I've found is that you guys actually trust trust and rely on me more because you're you realize if I don't know something, I won't knowingly make stuff up. And um yeah. Next question. AZF stories, when we pray for direction from God, should we ask for specific signs to guide us or confirm God's will 
uh, similar to Gideon and the fleece when the answer isn't clear to us? Oh, this is a great question. I'm super excited to hear this. And allow me to, to mention a specific teacher who I like. I like. But who I disagree with on this topic. At least the one study I'd heard. Somebody sent me a, a message from, and I'm pretty sure it was Vody Bauckham. Who I like. I like Vody Bauckham a lot. Um, he's kind of a hard guy not to like, actually, I think. But at any rate, he he's... He was teaching about if you do what Gideon did when he laid out the fleece, if you lay out a fleece, then that's like a form of witchcraft if you're doing it today. This is not right. <laughs> this I'm going to disagree on. We're going to agree on so much. The gospel of Christ. We're going to agree on a lot of things. But this is an area where I want to say, whoa, slow your roll. Okay, so Gideon. Gideon is is this person in the book of Judges who God calls while he's like, he's, he's, he's Judges says he's threshing out wine. Um, threshing grain in the wine vat, I think is, is the scenario, which means that you don't normally thresh grain there. He's, he's doing it, uh, because he's hiding from the Midianites. I think it was the Midianites who were oppressing the people at the time. He, to even farm, you had to like secretly keep and hide some of the, some of the food. So they were being very much oppressed at the time because the Midianites, I think it was Midian, may have been Moabites. I, I forget. And they would come in and they would steal the food and steal the crops and hurt the people. God comes to Gideon or sends an angel to Gideon and says, you know, hey, mighty man of valor, like God's going to use you to deliver Israel. Gideon's very self-conscious at this point. He's like, who am I? I'm like, I'm a nobody from like a lowly family. This is not my task. I'm not, the, I'm not that guy. And sure enough, God's like, yep, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Well, during the course of time where God's working in Gideon's life to do great things in Israel, to lead a deliverance from the people, for the people, um, Gideon asks God to sort of confirm that it's really him speaking. He, I, I don't know if Gideon wants to know he's not, he's not insane. Um, you know, maybe he wants some demonstration that, that, that this is really the all-powerful God who can do anything that is speaking to him now. So he puts a fleece out and he, he does it twice. And in one instance, he asks that the fleece will be wet in the morning, but the ground will be dry, which doesn't make sense because if, it's either all going to be wet or none of it, right? Well, he comes out and the fleece is like super wet. And another one of the instances, I forget the order, he lays the fleece out in the in the front of his place and he says, let the ground be wet and the fleece be dry. So this kind of confirms it wasn't a fluke. Now, this happens and it confirms to him, Gideon's like, okay, definitely God's really calling me. I'm going to go out and do it. This has led to modern Christians saying things like putting out a fleece. And putting out a fleece becomes like a like a proverb or a term that an idiom, I should say, that means like asking God to sort of prove something to you, not because you doubt God, but because you're not sure if what you're hearing is from him or not. And that's tend to, tends to be how a fleece is, or you, maybe you have a decision you want to make. And this is not what Gideon did. Um, you have a decision you want to make and you're not sure what to do. And so you, you, you put out a fleece. So I'll give you examples of a couple fleeces. Um, that, that, that I've seen people put out. So I remember one time in my life, true story here, I was leading worship at this, at this coffee shop and every week we were leading worship and I had, I had felt my, my heart moving towards this other ministry where I wanted to serve. And I felt that I had this obligation to lead worship here every week. And every week we had just a handful of people come, but we never had nobody come. It was always somebody there. And I remember praying, Lord, I feel like I should be moving and shifting my focus in ministry to this other thing, which ended up me being a youth pastor was the end result of that. And so I asked the Lord, I said, well, yeah, if I'm right, I just, I pray that nobody comes tonight to the worship thing. Like that just nobody shows up. So you show me, I'm not letting, I'm not letting people down like that. It's just, no one shows up. And so we got the worship group ready and we're there and nobody came. 
Nobody came that night. And I took that as like a piece of confirmation. Is that wrong? Was that witchcraft? Why? Why would that be witchcraft? But does that mean it was for sure God? Like, I don't know. I mean, it was, I mean, God used it in an important moment in my life. And I'm really glad I made that decision. And that helped me to feel more confident about that choice. So that was good. But then I've also heard people do fleeces that I think have been really reckless and dangerous. And so I'll, I'll share one. I know of somebody who they were, you know, in love and they were thinking about this boy and they said, God, if, if it's really you, if I'm going to marry that person, if I'm going to marry that boy, then I pray that when I wake up in the morning, I would hear the birds singing. And so they woke up in the morning and they heard the birds singing and then went out into the rest of the house and the mom that lived in the home turned to that person and said, aren't the birds beautiful today? Don't they sound great? Something along those lines. And to them, this was like total confirmation. Um, well, that was many years ago and this person did not marry that person. And everybody who knew them was like, they're not going to get together. Like you all know, this is not going to happen. And, um, and sure enough, they didn't. What I'm suggesting here is that the, the danger of a fleece, um, is that God didn't like tell you to do it. And so you don't, you don't control God. Like you can't just force God to answer you. And so I, I, I mean, God could have just done nothing. Maybe, maybe somebody showed up that night. Now would I have then been obligated to keep going and going? Maybe that would have been unwise to sort of like try to, this is the danger. You don't want to force God to try to speak to you. You want to like yield everything in your life to his will. And he may want to guide and direct you, or he may want you to make a choice because he wants, because some people, they want God to make choices for them. So they won't be accountable for their choices because then they can have God's stamp of approval. Like, oh, it'll work because God told me to do it. I don't have to think anymore about it. But God wants to raise up people who understand how to apply the book of Proverbs to life, which means making wise choices. So I, I think fleeces, um, we we shouldn't casually do putting out a fleece, but it's not inherently wrong or bad. And it's okay to be like, Lord, I'm looking for confirmation here. Just make sure your heart is humble and submitted to God and you're not trying to force God to answer you. And... Um, it is, it is unlike Gideon in a sense when, when we do things, even the things that I did, because I didn't have God clearly speak to me and then I'm looking to just make sure it's the Lord. Instead, here I am just wrestling with a decision and wanting God to tell me what to do. And the more I've grown in Christ, the more I've realized that a lot of times it seems like at least experientially in my life, like God doesn't want to tell you what to do. He wants to tell you how to make choices and then he wants you to make a godly choice. This is something I didn't like when I was younger, but the older I get, the more I appreciate it and the more I'm excited about it. And instead I realize, okay, so if I'm seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, if I'm seeking to honor him and bless others, and I'm seeking to the best of my ability to, to do things that would bring glory to him and help to other people, then those are just good choices to make and I can just go for it and that's okay. So I would never um, say, you know, don't anybody ever put out a fleece. I think that can, you know, in that idiom sense, but I think that we should have that wisdom of A, is my heart really submitted to God? B, am I trying to force God to answer something that he is not promised to answer? And um, and just to use wisdom, use wisdom. Don't be afraid to actually make choices as Christians. Um, that's something you're supposed to do. Question number six. Sherry Lynn says, please give me tips on how to overcome laziness. I work very hard at work, but get literally nothing done around the house when I get home. Feel free to be harsh. I need it. Thanks. Sherry, you are an embarrassment to... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, Sherry Lynn. Um, you work hard at work, 
but you're getting nothing done around the home. Um, all I can think to say to you is um, breaking laziness. Breaking laziness has to do with just you just you just change your habits. Like you have a habit. You you come home. You sit. You do nothing. You need you need tasks. You have to give yourself tasks. This is just my counsel as a human being to you. Give yourself tasks, right? Like on Mondays you're going to do this. On Tuesdays it's this. On Wednesdays it's that. Um, those would be some of my encouragements. If you find that overall your energy level is just really really low, if it's not just laziness but actual low energy, then you might look at perhaps exercise, which is the hardest thing to do when you have no energy, but it's the only thing to do is exercise, eat good, and um, and give yourself tasks. So when I say tasks, I mean, for instance, I give myself tasks. I have to do a Friday Q&A, so I have to do it. I'm going to teach once a week, so I have to prepare. I'm going to prepare because I have to because I have a commitment. But if you have no commitments at home, if at work you have all these tasks and commitments, but at home you have just optional things, but you don't consider them as things you are supposed to do, you're not going to do anything at home. So I would encourage you to consider adding tasks onto your list there. Sherry Lynn, no one else is going to fix it for you. You just have to start doing things. And that's that's the sad reality about laziness. Read the book of Proverbs. Like just start, read a proverb a day for the next 30 days, 31 days. Read one a day and pay special attention to what it says about laziness there. I hope those things help you, Sherry Lynn. I know there's probably more counsel that could be given to you. Um, laziness is... Um, well, one runner put it this way, or maybe it's a lot of runners that said it this way. They say the hardest thing about getting up and running every day is putting your shoes on. Laziness isn't about the work you do. It's about getting started on the work you do. If you just get started to start the task, you've overcome laziness much of the time. There's some counsel for you. A.D. Chan has a question. Matthew 26, 50. Jesus calls Judas friend as he is betrayed. Was Jesus being sarcastic at such a dire moment? The Greek word... Uh, Hetairos is used only by Matthew in um, eleven sixteen, and he gives four references where Matthew uses the word friend. So let's look at Matthew twenty six, verse fifty, and we're going to find a commonality in the way G Jesus treats Judas here. Uh, I think across the Gospels, I've recently been looking at this because I'm teaching about the Garden of Gethsemane this Sunday, so I've been studying this the past few days actually, but in Mark, so Judas comes. And he greets him, says, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Um, so, okay, is it, your theory is, is it irony that he calls him friend? I'm going to suggest there's, let's just look, this is something that's good to do as we do our Bible study, like lay out what possibilities are there. Jesus could be saying friend because he is Jesus' friend. Well, that's actually true. I mean, Jesus has treated him as a friend. Right? He, he has treated him, in you know, at least on Jesus' part, he was a friend. Jesus treated him as a friend. So there, so that could be true in a literal sense. But could it also have a layer of irony? Could that option be there as well? Well, yeah, because he's doing the most opposite or unfriendly thing possible. He's betraying Jesus. So perhaps both of those are there. Sometimes it's not one or the other. Sometimes you look at your options and you say it's both. Jesus could easily be saying, I've been your friend. But he's reminding him about his friend status as he's betraying him so that's that's pretty powerful um in mark we'll read a little bit more here um and i'll be covering some of this this week and then uh next week as well so after he prays then judas is going to come 
Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came with uh, one of the twelve, one of the twelve, and with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying to the one I will kiss, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him. Now there's nothing uh, right here where he says like, you know, anything to Judas. Now, it doesn't mean he never said anything to Judas. It's not there in Mark. But yet the irony is there because Judas is one of the 12 and then Judas kisses him. So this 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 irony, this layer of irony about the, the close relationship Judas had with Jesus as one of the 12 and then betraying him with a kiss, which would be to them an act of friendship, not an inappropriate or strange thing in their culture. Um, a guy kissing another guy, you know, maybe on the on cheek. I don't know. Um, this would have been normal for them in that culture, but it would have been an act of a friend. So do you, you get, I think that it's both and not either or in this case. So let me take question eight from Amanda Carmel. Or is it Carmel, like Mount Carmel? I think it should be Carmel, but that's because I pronounce Carmel, Carmel, and that has nothing to do with your question, which is, why does God not appear physically and audibly speak to everyone? I know some people that he does this with, but what makes them so special? Would it not get rid of all unbelief if he did? Um, I'm going to answer this one with a couple different thoughts here, Amanda. So first off, let's just talk about the danger of why doesn't God dot, dot, dot. When I see the danger of it, I mean, you know, I talked to a guy once, I'm not kidding you, who said that the problems of the government would go away if they would just print more money. Everyone could be rich. They just have to print more money. And so this guy thought, why doesn't the government just print more money and give and make everybody a millionaire? Why not? And I'm listening to him and I thought, he doesn't actually understand how inflation works or, or the economy at all. Like he literally thinks you could print money and it won't have a negative effect on the economy. Um, sometimes we're like this with God. God, why don't you just do this? And so this could be us in a position of deep ignorance about what's really going on in the world around us and what's going on with God and what he's doing. And now we're trying to figure out why doesn't God do my solution to the, to the world's problems this is putting ourselves in a place of thinking that we know God's job better than God does. And this is something that's really common in our culture today. We all think we know how government should do things. We all think we know how our politicians should do things, uh, how our parents should be doing things better, how our bosses should do things better. We're kind of a complainy, gripey, why doesn't, why don't they do my solution kind of culture? Like that's sort of, this whole YouTube channel is based on just why don't they do my plan? My, I know how to fix everything. So that can be a danger, a human danger we fall into. With my limited knowledge, I have a solution that would fix all the problems of the world as it relates to faith in God. God just physically appears and audibly speaks to everyone. And then that, wouldn't get, that would not get rid of unbelief, right? So all I'm saying is, Amanda, I'm not saying don't ask your question. I'm saying beware the mentality that forgets that there's a lot we don't know. Just be aware that there's things that are a little bit over our heads. And this might be one of those things. And if you're aware of that, then you have the humility to say, I may not know the right answer here. That's okay. I'm not judging God. I'm just trying to understand this issue better. And that's a good perspective. So why does God not appear physically and audibly speak to everyone? And the assumption here is, yeah, this would get rid of all unbelief. And my answer is, um, I don't think it would get rid of all unbelief. And I would also say unbelief is uh, persistent sometimes regardless of evidence. This is, in the, this is the case with Jesus where he performs tons of miracles and people know it and they see it and yet they're still unbelieving. He even um, 
is remarking on the unbelief of the generation where he visits and lives in in their midst and he does miracles he heals people he, you know he says in fact in a discussion in John that that they're not going to believe in him because they didn't believe Moses now i i would think Moses is great, but Jesus in your presence is way better. Jesus doing miracles, healing people right in front of you, preaching. This is way better. Like, of course, they'll believe you now, Jesus. And Jesus, he takes their current rejection of him in their presence, speaking to them, kind of like what you're suggesting here, and confirming his power because he's doing miracles. So he's not just a person preaching. He's he's clearly, like, from God. And he is God, ultimately, as we discover as you keep reading. But he's in their presence and he attributes their unbelief to a heart issue, not to an evidence issue. He says, if they don't believe Moses, they won't believe me. John in John 1, he's like, yeah, they, they loved the dark. This is why they didn't come to the light. So the implication is that a lot of unbelief is based upon heart issues, not evidence issues. But we focus on the evidence issues. Right? I focus on evidence all the time because I'm not, I'm not trying to do heart surgery on strangers. I'm not trying to assume all these things about you. But I also think it's easier to talk about evidence than it is to go to someone and talk about their heart problems. Yeah, you're really bitter about this stuff, aren't you? How come? Why is that? Like, they're not really wanting to discuss that stuff with me. So I'm suggesting that the, the God physically appearing and audibly speaking to everyone would just change the complaints. It wouldn't change the faith of a lot of people. Doesn't mean nobody would believe, okay? I don't know. Maybe they would. But I think that a lot of people would still disbelieve and they would, they would just have different issues. Right, like I, I could think of uh, atheists who I've heard say that even if it's true, like uh, Matt Dillahunty has said this, even if it's true, I would reject God. Even if I knew it was true beyond a shadow of it, I would reject God. I would go to hell just to make a point. So the the um, the reality is that we're not just struggling with information about God, whether we know it or not, whether we know there's a God. Romans one it tells us that uh, that really God's existence is obvious, and then we know that when the gospel goes out. Even if there's no apologetics, there's still the work of the Holy Spirit convicting people of sin, righteousness, judgment. And as they react to that conviction, that's how they often react to the gospel itself. Now, they might lean on intellectual excuses, but oftentimes when the intellectual reasons to not be Christian go away, we sometimes see there's still a heart that's hard. All that to say, um, I don't think it would fix things if God physically appeared and audibly spoke to everyone. Now, maybe more people get saved. Maybe. Maybe they would. Or maybe they wouldn't. I don't know the right answer there. It's possible. Some people would say, well, God's not doing this because he wants to give us, some people would say, he wants to give us the space to make decisions. Um, giving us even more information and more knowledge is not suitable to the purpose of letting us follow the heart decision we're making. And that another case can be made for that. I don't know the right answer there. Um, but I, again, in the end, I fall back on the idea that I don't, I'm not qualified to tell God what he should or shouldn't do for mankind as if God owes mankind as opposed to man owing God. And that's a big shift in perspective that I think we have to make. I am the, I am the, um, I'm the one in debt to the one who created me and calls me to account. He doesn't owe me. I owe him. That's a new, an unpopular and very true perspective. I believe Meg Smiley says, how do Jews obtain forgiveness for sin without the temple and sacrificial system in place? Thank you so much for your ministry. Your ministry is to me like the Bible answer man was to my mom. 
Thank you, Meg. Um, very kind compliment from, from you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to hear that. Um, okay, how do Jews today obtain forgiveness for sin? The answer ultimately, okay, from a Christian perspective, because I think you could take this question one of two ways. One way is, from a Christian perspective, how does a Jew obtain forgiveness of sin? And the answer is the same way all the Jews in the first century did through Jesus, right? Like, they put their trust in Christ. He is their Messiah. That's a Jewish term. He is the one who fulfills the law. He is the one who fulfills the prophets. He is he is their path to forgiveness. He is He is their sacrifice who died for them. And the book of Hebrews is really directed towards this idea. But there's another way to take that approach where you say, well, in the Jews' opinion, okay, like how do Jews today in their thinking, how do they obtain forgiveness when they have no temple and sacrifice in place? So they rejected Jesus or they're unaware of Christ in some sense. And they also, with the law of Moses, they got the law, but they're not, they don't know sacrifices. There's no temple in Jerusalem. There's, there's no priesthood operating right now. So how do they think they're being forgiven? And this is actually key. It took me a really long time to get this, Meg, but think of it like this. Biblical Judaism is not modern day Judaism. Modern day Judaism, while there's different kinds of Judaism and there's Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox and ultra-ultra-Orthodox, those are the real terms. Um, And there's conservative and then there's traditional Jews. There's all these different categories, but all of them, to my knowledge, all of them are different than biblical Judaism in very important ways. And that's why you could sort of group modern Judaism together under one umbrella called rabbinic Judaism. Now, why that term comes up is because in the first century, when the temple was destroyed, this created a crisis in Judaism because of the issues you just mentioned. There's no temple. There's no sacrificial system in place. Like, how are we supposed to, what do we do when the day of atonement comes if we can't offer the sacrifice? What do we do? And rabbinic Judaism was their way of reinterpreting or reapplying all of those rules in a temple-less Judaism. So, for instance, modern-day Jews, largely um, those who observe some form of, say, the Day of Atonement, they don't go and have a high priest who offers the, the bowl, right? That's not going on. Instead, what they do is they have a season where they're grieving and mourning and they're doing good works because they're good. I'm not kidding here. Think about this in light of the book of Romans. Their good works are replacing the sacrifices. Their sacrifices are their good deeds themselves. So it, the, the joke is, if you know, around the Day of Atonement, that's a good time to ask a Jewish person for a favor because they're trying to do good deeds as they're sort of trying to build up the works that replace the sacrifice that used to happen in the temple. So this is really interesting because this is exactly what Romans says about modern Judaism at the time was that they had rejected the sacrifice of God through Christ and that then they were trying to prop up their own works. They're establishing their own goodness. So this is Romans. I'll I'll just read it to you. Um, Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Look at the commentary. I think it applies so well to today's modern Judaism. I know that's offensive to people, but we, we need to, uh, well, we need to offend people if, if what they're doing is in grave error. Romans 10, 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is Israel he's talking about. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That's true still today, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That would be Christ. Christ is God's righteousness. This is what scripture tells us. He is the righteousness of God given to us and for us, but they've rejected that. And so for Christ is the end of the law for, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the, the Jew who's looking to works to earn righteousness is still in this heartbreaking place of Romans 10, 
where they are trying to earn earn God's favor, so to speak. Um, not that the Jew doesn't believe in any any measure of grace. Everybody believes in some kind of grace. The question is, is it totally by grace? Is it only by grace? Or is it grace plus my works? All right, there you go. Meg, that's your uh, question. And number 10 is from RAR17, who says, who are the gods in Psalms 82? Okay, well, Psalm 82. I was just listening to a podcast from Michael Heiser the other day. And um, I like Michael Heiser. And, um, but he's, he's always, always talking about Psalm 82. That's why I think about his, his dissertation was on this passage, I think. And some of you have asked me if I know who Michael Heiser is. I do. I know who he is. Um, I've listened to much of his stuff. Actually, side note, I am grateful for Michael Heiser because him and in his podcast, you guys, I would say, listen to his stuff, but listen to it with a grain of salt as you should listen to anything with a grain of salt. Um, he's really good at breaking down scholarship in a way that's accessible, um, but the danger for Christians when they discover a scholar they, they feel they can trust is that they just basically believe that one guy and everything he says. And, and ultimately, that's the place scripture should have in your life, not, not a scholar or anybody else, including me. So anyway, Psalm 82, a Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Um, now, the big debate on Psalm 82 is, is this talking about gods like heavenly beings gods or is it talking about people who are ironically being called gods those are the two basic approaches um michael heiser's famous because he's he has a, what's called the divine council worldview that he promotes and he suggests that these are actual like heavenly being type not, i don't know if heavenly beings is the right term he would use for it but but it's like that kind of thing that you would think of um, I don't currently hold that position. So let's read through the psalm and let's talk about it a little bit. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. First thing to note, that's the word Elohim. Uh, the word Elohim, and here I would agree with Michael Heiser, uh, is basically a disembodied spirit being. A, a spirit being, disembodied is probably the wrong term. Not embodied is a better term because disembodied implies it had a body and now it doesn't. It could be either way. So Elohim is a word that's used of God. It's a word that's that's used also of like, say, Samuel after he has died when he's no longer in his body and the witch at Endor calls him up. Samuel shows up and he's called an Elohim because that word was used in a lot of ways. It didn't just mean God, like in the sense of a deity. It just meant a disembodied thing. I think the English word God is a bad translation for the use of Elohim here, even based on that interpretation of it. But yet there it is. So um, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Now is where we start to have a question. Wait a minute. If he's talking to these gods, if they're these spirit beings, why are they being rebuked the way that God rebukes political leaders? Why is, why is he rebuking people the way that he rebukes, rebuking them the way that he rebukes those who do like um, uh, judgment for nations. I mean, this is what God says to Israel. Israel, you're not you're showing partiality to the wicked. That's unjust. You're not defending the fatherless and the weak. You're not maintaining the right of the afflicted and the destitute. These are things God rebukes nations for. So then some people say, well, maybe God's is the ironic term where he's like, oh yes, here you are. You're the lofty ones. You're the high ones. You're in the you're in these high positions, but maybe you're just people because you're doing these sort of um, earthly tasks. 
Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Okay, so that's that's the whole psalm. And um, I'm obviously not going to be able to do like answer every question here. I lean towards thinking Psalm 82 is talking about earthly rulers who are being uh, talked about as though they are sort of powerful spirit beings, like as if they were gods. Um, I don't think other gods in that sense, like in, in the pagan sense of gods, exist at all. There are a variety of spiritual beings out there of different kinds. We know that. We don't know all the different kinds and all they are. It's kind of a question mark for a lot of us. It's possible that Michael Heiser's view is correct and I would change my position at some point in the future and I'll let you guys know if I do. I'm inclined to think they're like men. When God sends Moses to Pharaoh, he says, you shall be as God to Pharaoh. Right? That didn't make Moses a divine being. Right? He was as God to Pharaoh. And here, the idea of leadership and authority being from God is, I mean, all governmental authority, all government leadership ultimately comes from God, all authorities from God. And so he calls them like, be you know divine beings or elohim or something like that i don't know if divine beings is even the right term for elohim so it's it's a challenging passage jesus then quotes it which makes it even more difficult to hash through because he quotes it in a way that i think is also ironic right because he called them gods to whom the psalm was written and then how do you say uh, how do you come against me for saying i'm the son of god which i kind of lean towards thinking jesus was being ironic in that passage i guess i won't get into it because it's a lot to get into today um I feel like somewhere else I talked about this in a little bit more detail. Yeah, it was in my interview that I did. Uh, I, I was interviewed by Melissa Doherty on her channel. We talked about new age and um, um, new age stuff versus Christian Christian stuff and like new age teaching entering Christianity and little God's teaching. We talk about that. It's in that interview. Maybe someone could find the timestamp and load that into the live chat. That would be great. If not, I'll put it down below. I will put it in the video description after this is over. I'll have to remember to do that. I go into more detail on this particular issue. So yeah, I think that they're I think they're people um, who have authority over other people, which is why they're ironically called gods. And then God's like, I'm gonna judge you. I'm gonna get you. <laughs> you know, whatever authority you think you have, you're oh, you're gods, your son's the most high. Oh, you're gonna die like men. All right, number eleven. Jade James, should Christians believe in the Big Bang? My brother says it isn't biblical because the Big Bang Theory includes light and God created light after the creation of the earth. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, let's look at Genesis real quick and let's approach this. And again, you guys know this about me. Or many of you know this about me. I'm not 100% sure on what my view on Genesis is. Um, one of these days I'll, I'll get into it in more detail. And, and the reason this happened is because I used to have a pretty confident view, but I hadn't really heard any other views than the young earth creationist view that I sort of was raised with as a Christian raised. I mean, I wasn't raised in the church age wise, but my faith grew in the church, you know, and, and that was the view I heard. And since then I've heard pushback on that, that I think is pretty interesting and strong. And it left me kind of saying, well, I'm not really sure what my view is now. I'm open to some different views and um, one day I hope to have more clarity on that. I'm not going to be afraid to share the things that I think or believe on those issues at all. I'm not pretending to not know, to avoid controversy or something like that. Um, 
On the contrary, I'm just being very honest and that I'm not really quite sure what my view of uh, the early chapters of Genesis is at the moment. But let's look at your question and we'll just kind of work through it a bit here. So, um, should Christians believe in the Big Bang? My brother says it isn't biblical because the Big Bang theory includes light and God created light after the creation of the earth. Let's look at the timing of this here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, the first thing I'll just notice is, and, and this is going to be a view that some people promote in Genesis, I'm just going to say it's an option, okay, is that there's local things happening around the earth. It's in and around the earth. The focus is around the earth. And so when God says, let there be light, it doesn't have to mean that um, there was no moment of light earlier at some other point. It just means right now, right here, right around the earth, now there's light. Because the earth is there, but now there's light. That's, that's a minimalist view of it. And so you would say, okay, if there had been a big bang, historically speaking, that happened before this, then this is just zooming forward. Um, there's other views of Genesis that I'm going to make everybody upset right now, but it's not on purpose. It's just that I'm not sure what my view is currently. That is that Genesis is uh, dealing with progressive creation. Okay, so here we are. We're focused on, again, the earth, but this is going to be much later time-wise. It's not, it's not the first 24 hours. That would be one view here. And so you'd have time for a big bang and a whole bunch of things to happen before this moment, whenever this is. Others would say that perhaps the 24-hour period time isn't actually with the focus at all. There's poetic signs of things going on in Genesis 1. Perhaps the context is, um, uh, the, the focus then is giving God credit for being the creator over and against pagan creation myths. So the idea here, some people think that Genesis borrowed from pagan creation myths, whereas the idea here is that, no, no, Genesis is competing with them. Genesis is saying, in your creation myth, you have lots of gods. You have lots of things going on. Here's the creation story from God to reveal the th primarily the theology that God alone made the heavens and the earth without these other beings, without these other things. There's no battle. There's no chaos battle taking place like in some of the other stories. And that may be also the emphasis as well. Um, now, the Big Bang is interesting. Let me talk about that for a second even though I realize I'm not fully answering your question, but only because I can't. <laughs> so the Big Bang is interesting though, because the Big Bang initially, now to, to, to a young earth creationist, the Big Bang is considered very bad because a young earth creationist thinks that you're granting a very old universe. Now you can believe in the Big Bang and not believe in evolution, like the guys um, uh, with the intelligent design movement typically are old earthers, but they're not believing in I mean, they believe in some evolution, but not in universal common descent and not in abiogenesis. And those are two things I, I also would, would have issue with. So what's interesting about the Big Bang, though, is if you're not a young Earth creationist, the Big Bang is actually really good evidence for God. And that's the irony here is that you've got two camps, young Earth creationists saying the Big Bang would prove my particular belief about the order of creation would, would prove that wrong. But then you have another group of Christians who say, I don't have your 24-hour day 6,000 years ago or, or maybe slightly longer um, or even 50,000 or 80,000 years ago. I don't have that view of creation. And so the Big Bang, I look at it as a way of saying, look, the entire universe popped into existence with nothing pre-existing. That's evidence for God. 
And I, and I think that's actually really good evidence for God. That's really strong evidence for God. This was one of the reasons why scientists back in the day, like in the 1920s, were pushing against the Big Bang Theory was because it's actually evidence that the universe has a creator. The popular belief scientifically at the time was an eternal universe. The universe just never stopped existing. You go back in the past, it's always, always, always been there. It's basically static. It doesn't change much. But, you know, Hubble discovers background radiation, combines it with with uh, uh, Friedrich Lemaitre's work and in Einstein is through relativity and they put all this work together and they go, the universe had a beginning at a point in time in the past. And then somebody mockingly called it a big bang. Oh yes, yeah, just poof, the whole universe just appears out of nothing. And they mocked this because they thought it was ridiculous and because it also really recommends the idea that there's a creator who's transcendent above the, beyond the universe, who's incredibly powerful, who's not dependent on time, one who is intelligent enough to create something that results in this, um, perhaps even personal because there was, seems to have been a deliberateness to it because it's not eternally old. It didn't, it's not, if there's a, oh, this gets complicated. If there's a cause, if there's a sufficient cause, the effect will always take place, but God chose at a, a moment to create the universe and so it hasn't always existed well if he always had the power then the only thing that seems that would have had him do it when he did it or you know the way he did it would be um his will which means he's personal so that's really interesting um i like talking about the big bang i think that it's evidence for god and it's scientific evidence for god which is pretty interesting yeah all right i'm gonna go to the next question um 12. So our fish says, how do I lovingly witness to my husband raised oneness Pentecostal discussing the Trinity? He gets angry, tongues falling out, etc. He says, I just don't get it because I haven't experienced it. Um, personally, I would have, I would just, I'm going to recommend you avoid the issue of tongues and falling out uh, um, because they're so secondary, but the idea of the Trinity is pretty important. Let me give you one verse that you might take to your husband. This is going to be actually in today's, this week's study in Mark chapter 14. I just happened to notice, I don't know, I never thought about this before in relation to the Trinity. But as you, you study things, you, you notice new things. I'm sure other people have. I've just never noticed it. And um, it comes from Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying to the Father. Now, one is Pentecostal. I don't think they can have this perspective on, on because they have like a modalism view. Okay, so this doesn't really work because in oneness Pentecostal, Jesus doesn't have his own will and the Father has his own will, right? Because that doesn't, that only works if there's different persons in the Trinity. But here, Jesus prays in Mark 14, 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So there's clearly a you and a me, right? The Father is you, Jesus is me. That would imply two different persons, Right? There's a you and a me. That requires two persons. Pretty simple. But then it gets even stronger because Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. This clearly indicates that there's something Jesus wants that the Father doesn't want. There's something Jesus prefers, wants, desires, wills, that is different than what the Father wills. And you can't have this unless the Father and Son are different persons. That, I think, is actually pretty powerful. Now, you go to other texts to confirm the deity of Christ, that Jesus is, in fact, God, and you have the two pillars of the doctrine of the Trinity. And you don't have to use the word Trinity if you don't want. I don't care, but um, the teaching's the same. The teaching's the matter. And the pillars are Jesus is God, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are different persons. 
So we have one God, three persons. Those are the two pillars. That's the whole doctrine right there in a nutshell. And here we have the persons being pushed upon us in Mark 14, 36. That might be something worth discussing. I would I would try to um, make sure if he gets angry, you don't. And and you know, you know your husband. Think of think of how to love him in the way you talk to him about these issues. And to know that sometimes an issue is so divisive in your marriage that it's time to just be quiet about it for the sake of the unity of your marriage and then to let the Lord work and pray for them and be an example for them and to give time because over time sometimes the the feelings slowly decrease and then the clarity can come again. Those would be my, my encouragements to you. Be, please don't stop praying for him either. Just continue to pray for him. Lift him up in prayer. But yes, uh, first thing is separate the primary issues from secondary issues like the tongues and falling out. I would I would make that secondary. If he wants to make a primary, maybe you'll talk about it, but I wouldn't. The Trinity, the issue of the, the person of Christ and who he is and stuff, I would make that more important and talk about it more. Steph T has a question, number 13. How do you summarize the gospel when you were sharing it in conversation, uh, e.g. With, with a stranger on the street or with someone from a different religion? Um, so, Steph, I don't have one way I summarize the gospel. I have, like, what I know of the gospel. And then I, um, I'm a teacher, right? You know this about me. Uh, one thing I've learned about teaching and talking to people is that I say things very differently to different crowds. It's still the same teaching, still the same gospel, but I present it in different ways. So I, I did an outreach in the Philippines once, and it was there's so many people there that are Catholic that I did a, an outreach on the difference between um, just a religion and an actual relationship with God. Now, I'm not going to do that at an atheist convention, right? I'm not going to do It's a different thing because I think they're dealing with different issues. I present the gospel to like a 13-year-old in a different way than I do to a 7-year-old in a different way than I do to a Buddhist who's 19. So I want to know the person so I can understand in my head, what are they going to have a hard time with? Also, what are the biggest obstacles between them and the gospel right now? And I want to tackle all that stuff. So yeah, how do you summarize the gospel? Um, look, like, you know, you've sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, right? And, and I probably wouldn't, see, I wouldn't use that phrase to someone who hasn't raised in church. Fallen short of the glory of God. I don't think someone who read, hasn't read the Bible is going to even know what I'm talking about. So I'll just be like, yeah, you know, you know, we've all sinned and we're going to stand before God one day and God is holy. And, and I, I'm going to deal with the sin issue. The sin issue is very important in the gospel. I'm going to deal with the person of Christ. I'm going to talk to him, Jesus, you know, who he is. You know, he's, he's God with us. He died on the cross for us. He rose again. If I'm dealing with a skeptic, I'll give a lot more evidence as I'm sharing the gospel. If I'm dealing with somebody who's, I feel I don't need have that obstacle, then I'm going to give less evidence. I'll stick more to just the presentation of the gospel itself. And more often than not, I don't ask to lead people in prayer at that moment. Um, you can, but I generally don't because maybe partly because nobody led me in prayer. I just heard it and believed it. <laughs> I didn't have that moment, you know? So those are some thoughts I have for you, Steph. Um, I approach individuals as individuals. The gospel never changes, but the way we express it to different people should change because people are different. Think of Paul. When he went to the synagogues, he preached Jesus from the Old Testament. When he went to the, the, the non-Jews, the Greeks, he just preached the resurrection of Christ um, and uh, and God's command in our how we respond to it. So even that approach changes even in the Bible, in the book of Acts. Jell Stapper says, Hey, Pastor Mike, how does the Holy Spirit speak to me personally? I felt uh, left a hyper-charismatic church and I'm confused. Thanks for all your teachings. Greetings from the Netherlands. Jell, uh, I'm going to suggest one thing first, which is this. If you're not sure it's the Lord, that's okay. 
act like you don't know and just make a wise choice. I have a theory that if God wants to speak to you, he can make it clear to you and you don't have to be like, oh, I just don't know, right? And if you really don't know, perhaps you pray for confirmation. Perhaps you do seek for some more evidence that God is speaking. Another way you can test gel is to look at your track record. So perhaps you are doing something and you feel like the Lord speaks to you and then you act on that. And there's fruit from that that makes it look like, boy, that really was the Lord. That really was the Lord. So I'll give an example from my life. Um, <clears throat> I had it heavy on my heart. I mean, extremely heavy burden on my heart to do this YouTube stuff years ago. And it had no fruit at first. It was no fruit at all. And I wasn't making very good content either because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just learning as I go. But I look at the fruit now and I go, yeah, I do believe that was the Lord. Now, I thought it was the Lord, but I wasn't maybe 100% sure. I just, I, I was pretty confident actually, to be honest. I felt pretty confident. God's laying something on my heart. I have to do something. I'm not sure what it is. And I told my wife, if I don't do it, I feel like I'm majorly missing the call of God in my life. So I was a little bit worried about this. And then I ended up doing this YouTube stuff. And it was that burden that I felt was from God that kept me going even when I didn't see fruit for a long, long time. So, so that's valuable for God to speak to you like that. But you also want to check your track record and ask the last time I felt this way, was it God? And if your answer is no, then have less confidence in that. And if your answer is yes, then have more confidence in that. You can also check with other believers. What do you think about this? So I, I, I've told this story before, but I know of a guy who said that the Lord told him to marry this girl. This girl had just broken up with a in a bad relationship, an ungodly relationship, and he had a crush on her. And he goes, God told me to marry her and take her to Mexico. We're going to be missionaries. He goes to Mexico. They come back a few weeks later and he says, God told me to come back and that we're not supposed to be married. <laughs> I'll be like, all this is, is an unstable individual projecting their desires on God. And that's what scripture warns us about. That some prophecy can come from your own heart. It's not really prophecy. It's just what I want so bad that I think God must want it for me too. doesn't mean it's an evil thing. It might be a good thing. It might be a bad thing. But it does mean I can confuse my heart for God. And that's where asking other believers to help you process through something can really help. Generally speaking though, most of the time, I'm just making choices based on what I believe is true and believe is needful and believe is good and right. And I do the right thing based on that. I'm not normally daily being led. I don't, I don't wake up and God's like, you should have a pastry for breakfast, Mike. I'm just telling you. And I get in the car and God's like, you should bring a red pin with you. You're going to need it later. Like this, this doesn't happen in my life. Like it's very rare and beautiful when it happens. But yeah, that, those would be some of my encouragements to you, Jill. Um, if you're not sure, don't kick yourself over it. Just say, Lord, you know, I'll obey you if I know, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to hold off on this because I'm worried that I am making this up and that's totally okay because God knows and he can make it clear to you. Daniel James says, why did God choose to die to redeem our sin? Does the Bible mention his motives for this method? Is this to show his power over death or is there another reason? Um, I, I think the scripture does mention this in a few places, but so it actually talks about um, wanting to show his long suffering love and his mercy. This is really interesting because God can show his power in judging us. He can show his, his, his righteousness in his wrath. But in the cross, he shows us, yes, he shows us righteousness because penalty is being paid for sin, but he shows us his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
God so loved the world, right? That the cross is this amazing echo of the fact that God is love. And if you ever doubt the fact that God loves you personally, you get to look at the cross and you get to say, God loves me because that shows me his love and his long suffering. It shows his patience. It shows his commitment to mankind to redeem us and to save us. It also shows how relationally he wants to be with us because God became man, took on flesh so that we could be saved, not just forgiven, but we could be joined to him that he could enter into our lives and we can have relationship with him. Like he wants intimate relationship with us. So I think the cross is, is meant to show us all these things. He shows us that he'll pay the penalty for the sins that I've incurred. Um, the, the love of God, the long suffering of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God, the desire for relationship with us that God has. I think these are communicated in the cross primarily. That's what screams to me. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that shows his glory. You could say, well, that shows his glory. Yeah. Cause God's glory is in his love and his grace and his wrath and his righteousness and his holiness in his kindness and his patience. Those are all glorious things about God. Slavic has a question. Uh, Galushkin says, hi, Mike, in the account of the demoniac at Gerasene, did Jesus make the swine run down the steep embankment and into the sea, therefore tricking the demons or did the demons somehow trick Jesus? Yeah. Did someone get tricked is the question, right? Did somebody get tricked? Um, this is this is a puzzle to me as well. And I, I taught through this in the Gospel of Mark series and some of that stuff I won't remember right now, but it's in my, in my verse by verse study going through the Gospel of Mark that I've been doing for quite a while now, for over a year. Um, let's just examine the, this story a little bit here. Let, let's go to the passage itself. Uh, let me find it for you. And it's in Mark five and let's read it together. And let's ask the question, did somebody get tricked? And if so, who All right, here we are. Uh, verse one of Mark five. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met with uh, met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the, on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a miserable, miserable guy. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. It's interesting that this is, happens a few times with Jesus is the demons think he's there to torment him. I think the demons know they're eventually going to be punished for all the things they've done. And they're, they're praying that it's not yet. That's why at one point they go, have you come to punish us before the time, to torment us before the time? So they know that some torment's coming and they recognize in Jesus who he really is. And so they're like scared. They're like, it's not supposed to be yet, Jesus. They seem to be aware of that uh, in other passages. For he was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. I think God wanted to preserve for us that there was a large number of demons inside this man. The thing about this guy is the degree of his possession. Mark sort of is ramping up. Jesus keeps tackling harder obstacles and keeps overcoming to demonstrate his power. So, you know, one 
he commands out a large number of demons. This is to show his great power. Um, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Did, did, did every pig get possessed? Uh, well, we don't know. I mean, if, if enough of them are possessed and they start running, then the rest start running and then they're all running. So I don't know. But um, here's, the, here's the questions we have. <laughs> um, was somebody tricked? So that assumes that what they did with these pigs is something Jesus don't, doesn't like, doesn't approve of. And that might be the case. That's possible. Not that... He, you know, but then it would also assume that he's not aware of it and he's not prepared for it. Okay, but he may not like it, but he may be allowing it because God allows things he doesn't like. So he may not be tricked. I think if we look at the demons, their their motive here could be to cause problems for Jesus. Here's Jesus. He shows up, he casts the demons out, and then somebody loses a whole like flock or whatever you call a group of pigs. A gross. <laughs> Get it? Because they're... Anyway, um, so that's a possibility. They're like, we're going we're gonna to kill all these things. Now, it serves Jesus's ends in a sense because it demonstrates his power to the disciples he casts the, the demon out of this guy and the demon numbers there's actually a bunch of demons and the swine reacting this way serves to elevate the the respect for jesus that the disciples and then even this man has and even as he tells his story to the people it's going to elevate their respect for jesus too later on when jesus returns to the same area there's a bunch of people that come out to meet him now, the only guy in the area that knew about Jesus is this demon-possessed man who Jesus says, go and tell him what great things God has done for you. And so he goes and tells them what great things Jesus has done for him. Interesting play on words that's done there in the text. Um, all that being said, the herd may have had a purpose in the demon's mind to cause problems for Jesus or because they just want to destroy things. Um, alternately, it could be that the herd of swine couldn't swim and they, the demons thought they could. That's also possible. They were trying to get away from Jesus. They fled into the water and they're trying to get away and the swines can't swim. Um, I heard somebody say that the type of pigs is they, there's like different kinds of pigs. Pigs can swim. These are short legged pigs and they can't swim. I don't, uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember how valid that is. That's a possibility. So my thought is, is that um, like a lot of the things that, that demons do in the text of scripture or that Satan does in the text of scripture, Satan has a purpose and he wants to ruin something for God ruin something for man and God has a purpose and he wants to use it for something good. And I think that this is a good example of that. The demons want to cause trouble. They want to cause havoc and they want to cause harm. And so they run these pigs into the water. That may be the reason for it. Maybe to cause trouble for Jesus. When the townspeople first come, they actually ask Jesus to leave. When they first show up, they're like, Hey, get out of here. Just leave. You're causing lots of trouble for us. We don't want this. But later when Jesus returns to the area, they're all running to him for healings. And so, what the demons had planned for bad, God may have flipped over for good. Jesus doing this thing may have ended up increasing his reputation. Um, on the flip side, these are pigs in Israel. Now, there's a good chance that the guy who had the pigs was actually a Gentile. But it may just be that under the law of Israel that they were not supposed to have these things. That this is also kind of a commentary on that. Um, that may be the case as well. Might have been Jew who had these pigs, that's possible, was more likely a Gentile, and it was probably more of Jesus reaching out to Gentiles in this area. Those are some thoughts. I hope you find them helpful. I don't think Jesus was actually tricked. I think that even if they tried to trick him, it backfired, as it seems like it generally does. Dasha 
uh, Kostenko says, due to Corona, me and my fiance haven't had a chance to get documentally or even in church married. He's in another country right now. We behave as if we were almost in everything. Is this justified? Um, why, why don't you just, Dasha, why not just go get the documents and not worry about this issue? Um, why not just uh, do something? Send out, like, like just do something. Dasha, like, don't put yourselves in this weird thing. Like, if you guys left, would you, you say, to us, we're married. But but if, if you left him, would you consider that a divorce? Or would you fall back and be like, well, technically, we weren't married. Like, this is seems like an unhealthy scenario. Marriage is like a, all I'm going to say is this is, and please hear my words here. Marriage is a real thing. A man and a man and wife, a husband and wife committing to each other to be joined, to, to love each other forever. And to be like, we consider ourselves married in most lots of ways. Like this is not a healthy thing for the security of your relationship. You should like make it as official as you possibly can. And if that means just filling out document paperwork, and if the government won't give you the paperwork, gather your friends and family, and even if it's on Zoom, and share some vows with each other, whether you have a pastor there or not, make it as official as you can. Do whatever you can to make this thing as official as you're able to in your scenario. Don't just act married and say, well, we act, we're basically married. Like, no, make it real, make it official, make it official. And I think that stuff's very valuable. And, and to give an example of this, um, let's say that you, 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 um, you're fostering a, a kid and in your head, you consider this kid, your son or your daughter, you're like, they're my kid. But one day, one day you go ahead and you put through the adoption paperwork and you legally adopt them. Isn't that a great day? Isn't that still a great day? Even though it's just the paperwork, it's still a great day, isn't it? When you're like, now you're adopted. There's still something special there, isn't there? I'm going to say that like in whatever way you can go and solidify this, this marriage as like a full, legitimate, totally committed thing. Um, and it's, it's good and it's healthy. So yeah, that's, that's my counsel to you. Don't wait, do it today. Do it, do it tomorrow. Do it right away. That's my advice to you. I love Wayne's world has a question. That's, that would be my uncle John. He loves Wayne's world. It's like his favorite thing in the world. Um, next to Jesus, I think, how do I avoid gluttony? Should I stay within a strict calorie limit or is it too legalistic? Man, I've been, I've been thinking about this issue. It's interesting that you bring up the question of gluttony. As I was reading the scripture recently, I was noticing that right alongside, and I've noticed it before. It's not like I've never read these things or thought about them, but I was just thinking about it in a fresh way and that that in our culture, we're like the whole frog in a kettle analogy where we can be living in this culture, not aware that we're becoming more ungodly along with our culture. And then we think it's normal because just so many Christians around us are doing it. And I fear that gluttony is in this category. Um, I really do. I, I really fear, I, I more and more suspect that gluttony has no ungodliness attached to it in the body of Christ at least locally, I'm not saying globally or something like that, but locally, at least in my experience and in my, the churches I've been at, it's just not a big deal if you're a glutton. And in fact, nobody would even think of themselves as being a glutton. It's just like everybody knows you're drunk, but does anybody know when you're being a glutton? So what I'm going to suggest is this, maybe what we need is not, you know, we don't want to be too legalistic on these issues. I, I, I agree with you there. But maybe what we need is to actually stop and rethink what the heart of the issues are behind gluttony. And that God doesn't, you know, Paul says the food is for stomach and stomach's for food, but God will destroy them both, right? You, your body belongs to the Lord, live for him. And that's the, that's one of the issues with, with gluttony is that I'm, 
there's something that I don't know if you just sense it in your spirit. This is unhealthy spiritually, not just physically. There's something about my commitment, addiction to this food. I'm eating too much, too often, and it's not good. And we have a lot of ways we justify this. I'm being super open with you guys here. Well, that's just my genetics. Like genetically, I'll be overweight no matter what I do. And I don't think that's like true of anybody. Like the laws of physics don't change. Like let's be honest here, right? The laws of physics don't change because your genetics make you prone towards being overweight. Now maybe you maybe you are prone to be overweight. That's fine. But let's not pretend that you can eat nothing and gain weight. Like physics doesn't work this way. So um, all that being said, I don't know if weight is even the best way to judge gluttony. I think that there are people who are skinny, who are gluttons, and there are people who are overweight, who are not gluttons. I think gluttony is a different type of thing, but weight can be a symptom of gluttony. That's also true. It can be a symptom, maybe even for you personally to realize like, yeah, this may be a problem. So um, one thing that maybe we need to bring back into the church is the regular act of fasting. Maybe this would be one way to avoid gluttony. Is a regular act of fasting. When's the last time you actually fasted just for a day? Just fasted to just make sure you spent more time in prayer, seeking the Lord to deny the flesh, to say no to yourself. When's the last time you did it, you know? Has it been years? And maybe you have a medical reason why you can't. I understand that. I'm not going to talk about that. Then fine. Do something else. But but I think that this is like a healthy, healthy thing. Fasting was just like something people just occasionally did. Um, and I think that maybe we need to bring that back. We need to bring that back. So... Should you stay within a calorie limit that's strict? No, I don't think so. Um, I think we are supposed to enjoy food. To balance this out, we're supposed to enjoy food. I think there's, it's even okay sometimes to get stuffed. To have like a Thanksgiving feast and be like, God is good and you're stuffed and you're tired and you're laying on the couch later on. That's fine. But if you're doing this every meal and every night, then I think it's moving towards gluttony. And that is a different issue. So um, I'd like to think about this more. Those are some of the thoughts I'm having right now. Again, do you have to stay in a strict calorie limit? No, I don't think so. Can you have occasional feasts? Absolutely. The question is, is it a pattern of behavior? Does food have control over me? Um, is it healthy behavior? Those are some of the questions to ask. And may God give us wisdom as we try to wrestle through it. I'm, I know I'm touching an issue that I think is really important, but I feel like I'm the frog in the kettle, not realizing how big of an issue this is. And it's like more and more starting to think about it. And I may do a teaching on it at some point. In which case, I'll just lose friends. I'm just kidding. I don't think so. All right. Evelyn Ellsworth says, I'm a Latter-day Saint Christian who enjoys your content, except for the denial of fellowship to Mormons. What does priesthood of all believers mean? What biblical support would you use for it? Oh, um, Evelyn, I'm going to ask you to like look up a video I have on the priesthood of all believers, that we're all priests. I taught through the book of 1 Peter years ago. Many of you don't know because my titles and thumbnails are terrible for those videos. Um, and the channel was a lot smaller. I, I taught through First Peter, then I taught Romans. I'm currently in Mark. Please, Evelyn, check that out. Somebody, if you would, put a link to the First Peter video where I talk about the priesthood of believers. I go into this in detail there. And the reason why I'm asking you to do that is because I want you to have the careful, thoughtful analysis and not my off-the-cuff answer. Evelyn, we disagree on very, very important issues. I love you. I care about you as much as I can to someone I haven't met and I'm not spending time with. But I, I care about you. I want you to consider... Um, oh man, I, I, I don't, I, apparently you haven't seen, or you don't agree with the content I've done on things like the book of Abraham, Evelyn, please check it out. I think Joseph Smith put a fraud on you. 
And you may think Joseph Smith's not that important now. I know that in modern Mormonism, they've de-emphasized Joseph Smith a lot, but your statement of faith just is that Joseph Smith is a prophet. Yet no man who does the things he did, like with the book of Abraham, where he obviously fabricated and tried to deceive people about translating something, um, where he added to the book of Genesis. I mean, the guy added, I have a video on this too, where Joseph Smith added himself into Genesis chapter 50. Read the last chapter of Genesis in Joseph Smith's translation. Read it other places. And how do you not see, Evelyn, this man has been trying to deceive you guys. And in the name of Christ, with with the accoutrements of like family values and things like that that are good, right? He's brought in false teaching. This is this he's the definition of a wolf in sheep's clothing, and I think you're a victim of him and of those who've continued to prop up his teaching, or those within the Mormon church who know it's not true, but they just keep it's just tradition. They've had it for so long. They love Mormonism, they love the the, the things that they've got there. But what they love are the imitations of genuineness, what they need to reject are the elements that came ultimately, the, de the definitional stuff that makes them Mormon in the first place. So Evelyn, I'm grateful you're there. I know we disagree on these issues, but oh man, uh, more than I care about the, the much of anything else when it comes to you and me here is that you would realize that Joseph Smith was a false prophet. Absolutely a false prophet. Provably, demonstrably in a number of ways. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. He was a false prophet who... Um, uh, maybe he was sincere and deceived. Maybe he was just deceiving. Maybe it was a mix of both. Doesn't matter. He's not someone to follow. So please check out my, my video that hopefully somebody has linked. I see it right there. Uh, Sarah has linked it in the chat. That's my video on the priesthood of all believers. And I hope you will check it out. Um, that one Christian, this is our, uh, 20th question. That one Christian says, what's up with those kids getting mauled with Elijah? I'm a Christian. So don't think it's a gotcha question. I'm just wondering, um, short answer here. Cause we're really going over on time. At least my intended time. Um, the, the kids that were mauled by Elijah, they're not children. That word I've done the word study on this word, and I'm not the only one who says this. They're not little children. Um, the, the term is being used as a way of disrespecting a crowd of, um, of uh thugs like like young guys yeah, but they're men they're not they're not children yeah um for instance uh solomon uses the word to discuss himself when he becomes king he uses the same hebrew word i can't remember right now to describe his own status and so it's obviously a diminutive thing it's it's i think it's saying they're punks is what it's really saying so yeah they were they were doing that um some some people not you some people want to say that it was like this group of like seven-year-olds they're all just hanging out like a roving gang of like 37 year olds or 47 year olds it's like no that's really not the case they're not kids they're not kids and when they call elijah a bald man they go go up bald man go up this is a we miss it because we're in our culture we don't know it this was specifically them mocking him and claiming ultimately that he's not really a representative of god and part of it is in the, the phrase go up bald man because uh they would use height terminology to refer to holy places and where he was at, they were claiming that their place was holy and his was not. This is not the language of little kids, right? This is a theological challenge to Elijah and the God of Israel and Elijah who serves as a revival prophet, trying to bring the people of Israel back to the God of Israel, just like he deals with Baal, the prophets of Baal and all that. Um, he calls down this, this bear and they mauls them. Yeah. So there's your, there's your answer. Bonus question 21. Brie Herb says, how many gummy bears are in your jar? Well, 
I just counted today, actually. There are a lot. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know how many gummy bears are in my jar. But I'll tell you what. These are not the good gummy bears. I bought, and I'm not even kidding. I'll show you guys. I bought online a pack of Haribo gummy bears. Because Haribo are the good gummy bears. I bought a giant pack. And I don't eat tons of gummy bears. Like, I'll nibble on them, but I don't eat tons. Um, but I just like the way they look. Somebody bought me this as, a, as, a, as like a fun gift. And I just thought it looked cool, so I put it in the background. These aren't real Haribo, though. They're fake. Like, I'm not even kidding you. Like, the look and the taste, like, I know my Haribo gummy bears. They're not real gummy bears. They're stinking Amazon imitations, which was, it, I guess it explains it because Haribo gummy bears were, like, all, like, three weeks shipping time. And I got these ones because they were the shortest shipping time. So I think they were just some kind of a scam. Haribo, someone's impersonating your gummy bears. Like, people keep impersonating me on social media to try to ask you guys to give them money. Which, by the way, has been happening a lot. Have I told you enough times yet? I'm not going to send you guys private messages telling you to join my special email Bible club that, and then I ask you for money and send money to this orphanage if you really love Jesus and things like that. Like, if you ever have a question about whether something is genuinely me or not, look for the blue check mark next to my YouTube name or go to BibleThinker.org, send us a message to confirm that it's legit because uh, those scammers be scamming. All right, y'all, Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and may he just give us wisdom. Um, and all the stuff that we've talked about, like it's interesting as we survey what we talk about today, there's been some stuff that's like theology, some stuff that's apologetics, but what it often comes down to as we walk away from the day is what about the application of it all into my life? Like is my heart focused on Christ? Is my life obedient to Christ? Am I exhibiting patterns of righteousness in my life right now? Love towards others. Uh, true beliefs in Christ and um, and uh, putting off the flesh to honor God. Those are the big questions. That's all. I'll see you Monday and uh, the Mark series will continue. And other than that, I got more stuff planned, but I don't know the dates, so I'm not going to tell you. All right. God bless you.